This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org/news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org/news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 24th, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Brad Marston talks with us about a finding that brings together geophysics and quantum physics. Is the Earth a topological insulator? And if it is, what does it mean? Dave Grimm is here with a story he wrote on the first depiction of a dog, and it's wearing a leash. And Jen Goldbeck is here with this month's book segment. She interviews author Susan Landau about her book, Listening In, Cybersecurity in an Insecure Age. Now we have David Grimm, online editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about a story, one story that he authored. And it focuses on what might be the earliest depiction of a dog found on rock art in Saudi Arabia. Hi, Dave. Hey, Sarah. So let's talk about the story and how it kind of came about. You know, you first mentioned the story in a news meeting and you said it might be the first depiction of a leash. Yes. And then you said... The first depiction of a dog, it turns out. Is that how it unfolded for you? Like you worked backwards? Yeah. Well, so when the, the researchers uh, sent me the story, which was very kind of them, when they sent me the, uh, the preliminary study, the big take-home point of the study was these are early depictions of dogs, which is always interesting because we know very little. We have There's a lot of speculation about what man's early relationship with dogs was and when dogs were domesticated. But also, one of the big conclusions that they made was this, this is by far the earliest depiction of leashes because yeah. – these images that we're going to talk about, they're at least 8,000 years old. At least that's the speculation. The researchers are really talking about, well, what are the oldest depictions of dogs that before this? And the oldest depiction that we knew about before this is some paintings on Iranian pottery that date somewhere between 
2,500 to 8,000 years old. So it's a really broad date range. And at most, they're thought to be 8,000 years old, where at least these are thought to be 8,000 or more years old, which suggests that these are probably the oldest images of dogs we have so far. Right. Where does that fit with when we think dogs were domesticated. Yeah. So this idea of where and when dogs were domesticated remains this real big black box in archaeology. We think dogs were domesticated somewhere between 15,000 to 30,000 years ago. Very unclear about where that happened. Some people say it happened in Europe. Some people say it happened in Southeast Asia. Some people even say it happened in the Middle East. Um, This story doesn't really answer that question because now we're only about eight, maybe 9,000 years ago. So this still would have been thousands of years after dogs were domesticated. But one of the big questions has been, why did we domesticate dogs in the first place? These were gray wolves before they were dogs. They would have been very feral, very wild animals. We would have been hunter-gatherers that had no time for pets. Uh, we could barely sort of survive ourselves. So why, we, why would we have brung an animal into our fold, an animal that would have required a lot of our attention, a lot of our food, a lot of our care. And a lot of the early speculation has been these animals helped us hunt. You know, if you have a dog, you can have an animal that can chase down very fast game like ibex and gazelles. You could have, if you had a pack of dogs, they could corner large animals like maybe wild horses. So it would have been worth it for us to bring dogs in because all of a sudden we had this animal that had a skill set beyond what we had. And yet, this was all speculation. There was really no evidence that we used early dogs to hunt. And now we've got potentially our very earliest pictures of dogs. And what are they doing? They're helping us hunt very clearly in these scenes. Right. So it's more than just a dog and a person. There's a pack of dogs. Some of them are tied to the person. And they're actively, there's bows and arrows and other animals, right? Right. You got basically a lot of these images have a person with a bow and arrow surrounded by a pack of dogs. The dogs are leashed to the person. But in other images, we have dogs biting the necks of gazelle and ibexes, dogs seemingly surrounding wild donkeys. And so this is really interesting because these are all seem to be hunting behaviors and go along with exactly what we think people would have used dogs for. And this was... In Saudi Arabia, is that kind of what we know about the people that were living there then? So these images are from Saudi Arabia, northwestern Saudi Arabia, a couple of ancient villages, one known as Shawamis, the other one known as Jabba. And these are pretty arid, pretty inhospitable places, and especially they were that way before 10,000 years ago. This is a this is a region where we didn't think anybody lived. But then around 10,000 years ago, it started to get wetter in the, these areas, and we think people moved into this area and started carving on the rocks there. Now, these people would have been hunter-gatherers. And some of the earliest images on the rocks depict what the scientists call curvy women. And these are basically women with large breasts, large buttocks. We don't really know what the significance of this art is, but it's thought to date to perhaps around 10,000 years ago. And then around seven to 8,000 years ago, as the people in this area started becoming herders, they started herding animals like cattle, sheep, and goats, we see carvings of people with these animals on the rocks. And in between, we see these hunting dogs. And that's why people think, that's why the scientists think the images date to about eight, 9,000 years ago, because that would be in between these two periods where you had hunter-gatherers and then you had herders. And I want to bring up a point here that came up a lot on Facebook and YouTube when this story was posted, and that it's that these 
depictions are very obviously men and male dogs. Now, does that have some kind of meaning? Well, so not all the dogs are male dogs, but the men are very clearly men. And you can see for yourself if you look at a picture on the site. And the question is, why are the hunters depicted with very prominent penises, erect penises, it looks like? Dogs, some of the dogs are depicted the same way, but some of the dogs don't have penises. It's hard to know for sure why, but it seems to be just a way to demark gender. So we know all these hunters were men, which is probably not surprising given what we know about this culture. But we also know now, based on these pictures, that some of the dogs were were male, some were female, some of the cattle were male. So these these genitalia were probably just a way to depict gender and probably nothing more than that. Okay. Well, let's go back to the leashes for a second here. I mean, we don't have physical evidence of this. We have like an artistic depiction. So how sure can we be that there were leashes that people were tying dogs to themselves? Yeah, it's a great question. One of the big problems with both the dating of these rocks and interpreting what they actually mean is that the archaeology the finds in this region, in these regions, are actually really sparse. So it's hard to say, like, well, here's the dog art, and here's a site very close, here's an archaeological site very close to these rocks that has a lot of similar objects or tells us a lot about the culture. We really know very little about the people that lived here. So the rock art, in many ways, is almost all we've got to go on. Um, So when we see these lines being drawn from the necks of the dogs to the waist of a hunter, it seems very clear to us with our modern mindset that they're leashes. And it would have made sense. I mean, these may have been particularly valuable dogs, maybe scent dogs that were leashed to the hunters or the hunter wanted to keep them close. Or maybe this was a way of training new dogs and how to hunt. Um, But, you know, maybe they're not leashes at all, right? Maybe there's something completely different. In fact, one of the people, one of the experts I talked to for the story says maybe it's just an indication of a bond. You know, you draw a line between a person and an animal, and that indicates that there's a special bond. And given that these dogs are sort of depicted with their own individual markings, their own gender, their own stances, some of the people I talk to think that these are actual individual dogs that are being represented, not just like generic, I hunt with dogs, but I hunted with these particular dogs. And the line running between the person and the dog is like, maybe this was my favorite dog or my most trusted dog and not necessarily a leash at all. But to your point, Sarah, we don't have dug up leashes. And so we have no idea if these were actually leashes or not. Yeah. And we should talk about one other kind of open question about this, which is the dates. I mean, how can we date something that's just a drawing or (laughs) an etching into a rock? Yeah, and the dates are the big deal here because if we're going to say these are the oldest images of dogs on record, if we're going to say these are the earliest leashes by thousands of years, we have to be pretty confident in the dating. And this type of rock art is very, very hard to date directly. You can't just sort of do radiocarbon dating or other methods to figure out how old it is. So a lot of this is based on inference and that sort of chronology I told you before, that we have the curvy women that seem to be about 10,000 years old. The dogs appear to be drawn on top of the curvy women, yet the cattle seem to be drawn on top of the dogs, which indicate the cattle are the youngest, the dogs are sort of in the middle, and the women are the oldest. And given what we know about the time frame from the cattle and the women, it seems like the dogs are eight to nine thousand years old. Now, there's some potential flaws with that because what if this were ju- what if these were just images that people drew thousands of years later, mm-hmm. depicting their ancestors? Oh, we knew our ancestors used to hunt with dogs. Let's draw a scene of that, you know. Or maybe there was a group of hunters that used dogs that existed thousands of years after everybody else had switched to herding, and maybe you know they were still hunting with dogs and they were just depicting themselves. So we can't know for sure. Mm-hmm. We're not so sure about the dates on the dog, but I need to ask my 
cat question that I always bring up in these types of situations. What is the oldest depiction of a cat? So right now, the oldest depiction of a cat is 4,000 years old, which would be thousands and thousands of years younger than these rock art images of dogs if they are about eight or 9,000 years old. And where do you think that image of a cat comes from, Sarah? I know you want me to say Egypt, <laughs> but I'm not going to. You should have said Egypt. <laughs> it is from Egypt. So not surprisingly, we know cats were very popular in Egypt. And the earliest painting we have comes from about 1950 BCE, and that comes from a tomb in Egypt. So that's the earliest depiction we have of a domestic cat. Not surprising. I mean, even though cats were maybe domesticated about nine or 10,000 years ago, which would have been around the time that this dog art, rock art was being made, it still could have been thousands of years before people actually started depicting them. And same with these dog, this dog rock art. You know, we know dogs were domesticated thousands of years before this rock art appeared, and yet it may have taken a while for people to start representing these animals in their art. Okay, Dave, it's always great to have you talk about one of your stories for uh, the podcast. Can you tell us about what else is on the site this week? Yeah, we got some cool stories. We got a story about how a fly that lives in a very toxic lake can build a submarine for itself. It builds a little bubble around itself to be able to not only stand on top of the lake, but actually dive under the water. So that's a really cool story. Also a story about using your iPhone potentially to detect mosquitoes. Uh, For Science Insider Policy Blog, we've got a story about how drilling in the Arctic Wildlife Refuge could compromise one of North America's largest and healthiest caribou populations. Also, the latest in a case of a Boston University geologist who was accused of sexual harassment. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. I've heard of topological insulators because quantum physicists talk about them sometimes here in the office, but I don't hear a lot of my geophysics colleagues talking about them. But it turns out there is some overlap. The Earth itself may very well be a giant topological insulator. Okay, so maybe now you're curious about what these topological insulators are and what it might mean for those of us who dwell here on a giant one. Brad Marston is here to talk about the physics of topological insulators and how it might apply to wind, weather, and waves at the planetary scale. Welcome, Brad. Hello, thank you for having me. Sure. So Brad Marston's here, and he's going to take us through some of the basics in order to get this connection between a quantum phenomena like topological insulators and what's going on at the planetary level with weather, wind, and water. Let's start with what a topological insulator is. Can you give us a very basic definition that maybe someone from the physics side would recognize and someone from the geophysics side would recognize? Okay, yeah, a topological insulator is uh, a system uh, that doesn't have currents flowing through the interior, only around the edges. Okay. And why is this something that people care about or are interested in studying? To understand why there are these currents, um, we uh, invoke the field of topology. And topology, the mathematics of topology, basically guarantees the existence of these currents around the edges. So when I hear topology, I think of like the surface of something, the shape of the surface. It's the qualitative description of objects but the objects aren't necessarily physical objects like a cup of coffee, right? <laughs> okay. So people always do the analogy between a cup of coffee and a donut, and they're topologically the same because the, the cup has a handle, has one hole going through it. Yeah. So does the donut. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, so that's a that's a that's a nice physical example. But in these topological insulators, there is also a qualitative topology um, that differs from an ordinary insulator, like a piece of quartz. Piece of quartz mm-hmm. it won't conduct current either in the interior or around the edges. So we, we say quartz is topologically trivial, and there's something non-trivial about these topological insulators that has the currents going around the edges. What are the practical applications of studying these at the quantum level? What, what, are, what do you say for that? There are ideas about new uh, devices that might be made uh, with these. For instance, um, there is an idea that perhaps you could build new types of uh, rectifiers you know, to convert AC uh, electromagnetic radiation to a DC current because the, the, the current just goes in one way. There are also ideas about using them in quantum computers because the scattering affects them less than in ordinary systems. Then they might have some robustness against decoherence in quantum computers. So some people are investigating that. But I think we don't really know all the possible applications. Okay, I think I got it from the physics side of it. So let's bring in oceans. Why not, right? Yes. So what got me started on this is uh, thinking about the fact that the rotation of the Earth and the Coriolis force is very similar in many ways to the effect of a magnetic field on a current, a charge current. The magnetic field causes electrons to go in circles, and around the edges, they kind of make uh, they kind of bounce along the edge of the sample in one direction only. So the reason it's going that one direction is because the magnetic field breaks time reversal symmetry. It picks out a preferred direction for things to move. And it's the same thing with the Earth's rotation and the Coriolis force. The Coriolis force deflects things at right angles to the motion, like uh, a high-pressure cell in the northern hemisphere uh, rotates clockwise because of the Coriolis force. The low-pressure region rotates counterclockwise, and it's reversed in the southern hemisphere. So because uh, the Coriolis force has the opposite sign. That's the whole thing about, you know, water going down a bathtub. Yeah. Which isn't true, but... Yeah, it, I know. It's, it's like, that's what everyone talks about, but it's not a good example. Right. But it is, it does work on the global scale. That's right, okay. yeah, because Coriolis force is a really, um, it becomes more and more important as you get to bigger and bigger size uh, things. So the Earth breaks time reversal symmetry, and... Let's so stop right there and just say what time reversal symmetry is in a very, like, basic way, if you don't mind. Right. So if we imagine you're looking, you're an astronaut looking at the Earth from the moon, of course, it's going to be rotating over the course of a day. And if you took a movie, you would show that rotation. But if you ran the movie backwards, the rotation would be in the opposite direction. If time goes one way, it, move, it rotates one way. If time goes the other way, it rotates the opposite way. So it picks out a kind of preferred direction for things to, to move. Can you give an example of something that would be symmetrical forwards and backwards? Yeah. So say that you had a planet that wasn't rotating. Okay. If you had a high pressure region, the air would just go straight out from it, away from the high pressure. It would spread out, but it wouldn't curve one way or the other. Okay, and so if you looked at that backwards and forwards, it would just be perfectly symmetrical. Yep. Okay, yep. going back to the entire Earth and uh, the Coriolis effect, what makes it like a topological insulator? It, is this time reversal symmetry the thing that makes it like a topological insulator? That's one of the ingredients. Okay. Um, 
in the topological insulator, the crucial thing at the edge is that you have a boundary between a topologically non-trivial phase and a different phase. It could be topologically trivial, like quartz or a vacuum, or it might be a topologically trivial in an opposite way. And that's what happens in the case of Earth. We have the two hemispheres are joined together at the equator, and the equator is like the boundary between these two different topological insulators. And there, well, there's some other ingredient, mathematical ingredients, but that's basically the setup that you look for. When we first started thinking about it, we were thinking about more complicated examples. Uh, but to our surprise, uh, my French collaborator, Antoine Benai, realized that this very simple example that's been understood since the 1960s was a, uh, a beautiful realization of this topological insulator. In fact, you could say that geophysicists discovered topological insulators <laughs> a long time before quantum physicists. So what, what are the consequences of thinking about the Earth as a topological insulator? So it means that there's going to be these waves along the equator of the Earth and that the geophysicists call Kelvin waves and Yanai waves. Are they in water or in air? Both. Okay. They're important in the equatorial oceans, but they're also in the atmosphere. And so they play a role in at least uh, three different ways in the climate system. Uh, for example, in the El Nino Southern Oscillation, we have this sloshing of warm water across the Pacific uh, from the west to the east. Uh, that's when the El Nino occurs, and you got warm water building up over South America. That water is, tra is transported by a Kelvin wave. And so that's probably the most uh, clear example. So this seems to have you know, explanatory power, and it fits the description of what we know of the world. Does it then give us some predictive power? Well, that's uh, what we need to explore now, I think. One idea that I want to investigate is that we now know we can look for these topological features in, say, climate data, which yeah. has never been done before. And that might give us a clearer signature of these kinds of waves. And we might be able to clarify their role in, say, this Madden-Julian oscillation or something else called the quasi-biennial oscillation in the stratosphere. And uh, so that would be interesting. So let's, let's go back to quantum for a second. Can we do research at the big level that helps us with the small level or at the small level that helps us with the big level? Well, I'd say that it's uh, more the second direction right now because the quantum physicists have been working on this and have done the classification of all the different topological orders. And so we can draw on that knowledge base to uh, look for maybe new, there's probably other geophysical waves or astrophysical waves that have this topological origin. On the other direction, I think uh, that these waves will be a good way to explain what a topological insulator is to other people, because I've had a hard time, all of us have a hard time explaining this, you know, even to science journalists. Yeah. There's several levels of abstraction. And this removes one level of abstraction because it's not quantum. It's just a wave and everyone, you know, is used to waves. Yeah, we're on board with waves. <laughs> Plus, we, we live in this topological insulator, so you can just literally see it, yeah, right? So it's not like you require some fancy laboratory to check this out. Or right? a really elaborate 3D rendering. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Brad. Thank you so much for talking with me.
Well, thank you very much. Brad Marston and colleagues write about the Earth as a topological insulator this week in science. everyone. I'm Jen Golbeck, and welcome to this month's book segment of the podcast. For November, we're talking with Susan Landau about her new book, Listening In, Cybersecurity in an Insecure Age. Susan, your book positions itself in the shadow of the FBI-Apple battle. This came up after the San Bernardino terrorist attacks, where the FBI wanted access to the phone of one of the shooters, and Apple refused to modify their software to essentially put in a back door to allow the FBI access. But there's a broader issue of encryption and data security on phones that's pitting law enforcement against tech companies. What's the foundation of that debate? For decades, there's been discussion from law enforcement and sometimes from national security about encrypted voice conversations. But over the last half dozen years, first Apple and then Android began protecting phones And the FBI and law enforcement more generally in the United States and abroad began objecting because, of course, one, there's data on the phones and two, some data that that we used to carry around in an address book or on slips of paper has migrated to the phones and isn't anywhere else. And the phones are a marvelous repository of information. So law enforcement wants access to it. At the same time, Phones are a marvelous repository of information, and other people, like criminals, want access to it. This is often presented as a privacy versus security debate, where our right to privacy as citizens is put against our personal security or against national security. The argument is always something like, if a terrorist is threatening to blow up a building where thousands of people will die, but you can evacuate the building if only you can get access to his phone, would you really deny the government that access? And those threats are certainly real, but of course, if you give the U.S. government that kind of access, a lot of other scary, unsavory people can use that too, whether it's other governments or terrorist groups or criminals. Can you weigh in on this privacy versus security presentation of that problem? So for a long time, law enforcement has been arguing this is all about privacy versus security. And of course, if we're really going to keep ourselves secure in an age of terror, in an age of Russian hacking into civil society, then clearly privacy is less important than security. But I think that's a real misnomer and a misunderstanding of what data we're actually protecting. We're really in a situation where it's security versus security, in part because of all the information that people are increasingly entrusting to digital devices. If the phone is made weaker, if it's easier for law enforcement to get into a phone, it's also easier for talented bad guys to get into a phone. And might talented bad guys do so? Certainly the talented bad guys who broke into the DNC would be interested in doing so, and they'd be interested in doing so to much more than our political parties. They'd be interested in doing so to civil society. They'd be interested in doing so to government. They'd be interested in doing so to industry. And it would be a very dangerous situation. Apple has really put themselves forward as pro-encryption, and it seems to be claiming security as a selling point of their products. Do you think security and privacy are becoming a competitive advantage in the marketplace? So I think security is already a competitive advantage. And uh, I think the reason that that BlackBerry went under and that uh, Apple is doing so well is essentially Apple and to a certain extent Android. But Apple really said stole that market. It said, 
We're going to have secure communications devices. They're going to be protected so you can do your work communications on them. Oh, and by the way, they will also have apps, so they're much more versatile. And BlackBerry is still used by a very small minority, but it's, its sales is nothing compared with what it was 10 years ago before the introduction of smartphones. On the issue of privacy, it's somewhat more complicated uh, because privacy is using the data. So I think Google has a very good story on security. Google really protects the data it takes from people. Um, but does it protect privacy? Well, that's a different issue. Google certainly uses the data to provide its users with better answers, uh, whether it's better ads or better information. It's using that private data. And I think people will always make, many people will make the choice that they would like solutions more tailored to themselves and give up data to enable that. Well, Susan Landau, it's been great talking with you. The book is Listening In, Cybersecurity in an Insecure Age, and it's out this month. That's it for us for November. We'd love to hear your feedback at Books at All, the Science Magazine Books blog, and we'll be back in December with another book to add to your reading list. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, Write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.